Thank you for joining us for this Highway 89 Extra. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Adam Schoenberg recently had an auspicious release, and American Symphony is a particular work of his that was inspired by one inauguration of a president and is being released, or was just recently released, for the most recent presidential inauguration. We'll talk to him about that. He's recently named one of the top 10 most performed living classical composers by orchestras in the U.S., which is saying quite a bit because lately there have been, I think, an increase in the number of commissions and new works done. He's a graduate of Oberlin Conservatory of Music, earned his master's and doctor of musical arts from the Juilliard School, and he teaches now at Occidental College, running the composition and the film scoring programs. Speaking to him, am I speaking to you from Los Angeles? Yes. Well, when you have your works performed by as many places as you have, it's never certain what city you're calling from. That is true. Oftentimes, orchestras like to bring composers uh, to the city to work, A, with the orchestras and also to meet the audience and talk before the piece, walk out on stage and talk about the piece. And, uh, you know, because it's not often that an audience will get to meet a living composer. Exactly, exactly. First of all, congratulations on this album that's coming out, this release. I do want to say that it's a collaboration with Michael Stern and the Kansas City Symphony. So have they been performing your works for several years now? Yeah, Michael in particular is one of my greatest champions. He uh, gave me my first orchestral commission, the piece Finding Rothko, which is the first piece on the album. And then I was a composer in residence with the Kansas City Symphony, and they commissioned both American Symphony and Picture Studies. So it's a very personal disc in terms of my relationship with Michael and with the symphony as well. Interesting writing for a group that you know all of their strengths. Do you think that influenced the way you wrote, knowing those players? Yes and no. I mean, for me, the greatest part of our relationship is really this orchestra in many ways, you know, witnessed me from student to professional. And I have several friends in the orchestra. And so whenever I'm working on a part or a certain moment in in a piece, I could always reach out to one of my friends in the orchestra and say, hey, I've, I've been thinking about this line. Does this work for you? You know, how can I make this better? And so we can bounce ideas off of each other. And so it's a very collaborative type of relationship. So yes, I do have certain people in mind when I'm writing for a specific commission, or in this case, the pieces with the Kansas City Symphony. Uh, But also, I I am just trying to, in many ways, write initially from the subconscious, and I don't want to necessarily be aware of who I'm writing for in those moments. And then as I start to craft it, I'll start to hone in on the person or the instrument. You know, it reminds me of Brahms writing for strings and bringing in Josef Joachim, or uh, Tchaikovsky pulling in a cellist or a violinist to try things out first. (laughs) Yeah, it's really the best way I think that we can learn. I tell all my students that whenever they have questions about a specific part to just go knock on a practice room door when they hear someone playing and say, hey, does this work? Yes or no? You know, you teach film scoring as well as composition. I'm wondering, where does film scoring fit in today? Is that equivalent to maybe what used to be the symphony hall in centuries past? I mean, I I think film composition and film scoring. Well, first of all, even though my classical album with the, with the Kansas City Symphony is is you know just came out, I do know that so many film scores and soundtracks are some of the highest selling albums that would fit in in the classical medium. And I think now more than ever, you have many composers who are working in both mediums. So I think it's important, you know, as a composer of, of concert music, to dive in a little into learning how to write for, for media 
and also those who are specifically solely interested in writing for media, I think it's actually worthwhile to take some composition classes and learn about how to properly notate something, because there are many film composers who don't really know how to notate music. They end up hiring people to do that, and that's not to say that's an issue, but I think you know, in the 21st century, it's great to be, it's good to be as well-rounded as possible. And there's so much technology that you can use these days in the writing and even hearing it back to imagine before you hear it played by the orchestra. Oh, yeah. And, and today that's why you do not need to really know how to notate music, especially if you're writing a film, doing a film score that is completely, entirely, you know, synthetic, an electronic score. You would just be playing on your keyboard and going into a computer. So there's lots of different ways to compose today. Well, let's talk about American Symphony. This was a commission from the Kansas City Symphony. So first of all, congratulations on that alone. <laughs> composers, classical composers getting commissions. We're high, highly in favor of that these days. But talk to me about the inspiration. Did they want something called American Symphony or they just wanted to work and this is what you came up with? No, inter- interestingly, so... You know, the 2008 presidential election was, was really, it was the first election that was so significant in terms of my early adulthood. Mm-hmm. And I felt very passionate about the election. And the symphony is not a political piece. I think no matter which party you were in favor for during that time, everyone wanted change. And after Obama was elected, I was living in Miami at the time. And I think three nights later, the New World Symphony performed Copeland's Symphony Number no. 3 live. And of course, I studied that piece at Juilliard, but I never actually witnessed it in person. And it was this profound experience to hear, in my opinion, the quintessential American symphony completed just after World War II ended, to hear that live and also just be part of the aftermath of this of President Obama being elected. And I just felt this this. I guess, this urge and desire and responsibility, really a sense of responsibility, you know, almost my civic duty in a way to try to bring more beauty to our world. And, you know, as a composer, writing music is the best way that I can do that. And so I said, I'm going to write my first significant work. And that's really how it began. And then, of course, you would say, well, why symphony or why American symphony? And, you know, the term symphony in the 21st century, we don't really know what that means. No, no one is necessarily writing entirely in a true symphony form where you're going to have a sonata allegro movement for the, you know, for the first movement. But for me, the term symphony just carries a certain significance, a certain amount of weight. So mm-hmm. if I'm going, going to call something a symphony, then it needs to be important. And all of my names, titles for pieces, almost always come before I write a piece of music. And for whatever reason, American Symphony just continued to come back to me. And at first, I was worried about titling a piece this way, but I just stuck with it. So basically, I decided I was going to write my first symphony. And at that point, I reached out to Michael, Michael Stern in Kansas City, and said, I'm going to write my first symphony. Do you want to you know, help commission it? I'm coming to you first. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm going to go find someone else later. And they came back to me and said, yes, we want to commission it. Nice. Well, let's talk through some of the movements here. There are five movements, beginning with fanfare. So fanfare, in a way, is almost an homage to Copeland's symphony because he has the fanfare for the common man mm-hmm. as you know, in the piece. And so it's an extractable fanfare. On its own, it's called Up. And in American Symphony, it's called Fanfare. And it's essentially announcing the arrival of the symphony. It's a very upbeat, uplifting, 
three-minute fun ride, I guess you could say. Yeah, it's um, definitely an announcing the arrival of something big. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> and and then when it ends, it, it, it ends with a huge crash, and it takes you a taco without pause right into the second movement, which is called White on Blue, which is very contemplative and reflective. And in, in, in the way I conceived it was, it was asking us to reflect back on our past. The title huh? calls to mind to me the white stars on the blue field. It can do that. I was also trying to take certain things from our flag as well. Mm. And that's a very atmospheric movement. It also transitions into the third movement, Played Without Pause. And because I was writing a symphony, I wanted to have one movement that has some traditional form. And it's not to say that a rondo is traditionally found in a symphony, but I love the rondo type of structure, A, B, A, C, A, D, A, so forth. And so the third movement is called Rondo, and it's a very strict Rondo, but it's a more of a, you know, a 21st century type of Rondo. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth movement is Prayer, which I think can describe itself. Everything in my adult life from 9-11 to Hurricane Katrina to our financial crisis, all of that happened before this symphony was written in the 21st century. And the movement ends with an Amen chord. And then the fifth and final movement is called Stars, Stripes, and Celebration. It begins in a slower, gentler, more gentle type of manner, and then it speeds up and becomes much more celebratory. So tell me about rehearsing this with the orchestra and then actually getting to see it performed. Yeah, well, you know, first of all, whenever you show up for a world premiere and, and you have the first rehearsal, you are, at least me, I'm, I'm extremely nervous and almost afraid and afraid about how is this going to sound? How is this going to turn out? Have the players even sat down to play through together yet at that point? Usually not. So technically, when you get a commission contract, it's custom to deliver the score and parts about eight weeks before the actual performance. So in theory, the players will get their parts a few weeks ahead of time because this Principal string players have to do all the bow markings, and then they distribute the string parts to all the subsequent players. But technically, all the musicians would have the music at least a couple weeks in advance before the first rehearsal. But when we all come together for that first rehearsal, they are sitting together as a unit for the first time reading this piece, and the conductors reading it for the first time with the orchestra, and the composers in the hall with the orchestra for the first time. So it's a, sweating. It's a new process. Sweating, I'm sure. Yeah, it's it's pretty intense. Um, well, but then you realize that it's usually better than you thought. And, of course, you also realize, wow, I need to absolutely change this. The, that, that trump, the trumpet doubling the flute right there in measure 33 is not working. I need to get rid of the trumpet. Maybe I'll have a clarinet come in instead. Whatever it is, you immediately start to make revisions. And so you end up spending all night staying up all night in a hotel, making all these changes after the first rehearsal, sending these changes in so that the players have <laughs> updated parts for the second rehearsal, and you even usually go back and make revisions before the third rehearsal. So it's a very stressful process, and I don't necessarily think it's a very healthy or good process. My wife now is primarily a TV writer, but when we first met, she was a playwright, and she used to talk to me about her process makes so much more sense. She would write a play, they'd sit down and have a roundtable reading of it. She can go back, make revisions, then they'd have a workshop of it. They'd go back and make revisions, and then eventually they would mount it. And so 
I've had some orchestras, and Kansas City has done this with picture studies, the last piece on the CD, where they'd bring me in three months before the premiere, and we'd actually read through the piece for an afternoon, and then I'd return to wherever I was living and make revisions and send a final set of parts a couple weeks later. At that point, it's a mutually beneficial process because the orchestra knows exactly what to expect ahead of time, the conductor knows what type of piece he or she is getting, and the composer feels like he or she has adequate time to really make the best possible revisions. But that's not always how it works, it sounds like. 99% of the time, it never works that way. (laughs) Well, I'm wondering, because you have been through this process several times, as they are playing through, who are you watching? Are you just listening to hear if it's turning out how you hope? Or can you tell from looking at the players if they're appreciating it or if they are excited to play the work? Yes and no. Uh, sometimes people are smiling and really, the, 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 you know, I think everyone is in business mode. The orchestra, you know, is part of a union. So time is of the essence and they want to take advantage of every second. So, I think some people are just incredibly serious looking when they're on stage. Other people are rocking and really moving around to the rhythm. But after the rehearsal, I can, you know, I'll usually get feedback from the players in terms of if, if, well, if they like it, they'll definitely come up to me. If they don't like it, they probably won't say anything to me. (laughs) I'm speaking with Adam Schoenberg, who is that rare thing, a living classical composer. He has a brand new album release that includes three of his works, Finding Rothko, American Symphony, which we've been discussing, and Picture Studies. Adam, I wonder, do you think there are are increasing numbers of opportunities for composers for live orchestras today as opposed to maybe 10 years ago or 20? I think so. I think, you know, we've reached this renaissance where there's so many living composers who are writing music that the audience wants to hear. I mean, the, the problem with the 20th century is we lost the audience at some point when with new music. And that's not to say that bad new music was being written. It just, there was this divide between the audience and the composer. Mm-hmm. And I feel like today there's a much deeper connection between the composer and the audience. And many orchestras are now starting to program new works on more subscriptions. I still don't think we've reached the point where I hope we'll reach, which is I imagine in the next five years, every single subscription that an orchestra has will feature a 21st century composition on it, because I think that's one way to continue to build the audience. But there's an incredible wealth of music being written today, and it's an exciting time to be a composer. There's a quote on your website. Maybe we can end with this and your thoughts on this. My music comes straight from the heart, striving to be beautiful and inspiring and simultaneously challenging and rewarding. That is an interesting balance with an audience who may or may not have lots of musical training. Yeah, so I tell my students this because I went to Oberlin for my undergrad, and at the time, the composition department and the music that I was writing didn't necessarily meld. The greatest gift I took away from that experience was that you need to stay true to who you are as an artist. Write the music that you believe in. And if you have that belief, then hopefully it can transcend upon others. And so I first and foremost write the music that I believe in, and it does, it's music that initially does come from my heart and does come from the subconscious. But I also believe in growing this art form. And so there has to be some moment in the music that pushes the player, and I guess ultimately may push the audience member. But I don't believe in just pushing a player for the sake of pushing them. There has to be some type of 
payoff and reward at the end. So I love it when players come up to me and say, God, that piccolo trumpet part was so hard. And I was really frustrated at first. But thank you so much for writing it because it was really rewarding to play. (laughs) Nice to hear. And probably that means rewarding to listen to as well. I hope so. (laughs) You can follow Adam Schoenberg's work at adamschoenberg.com. That's A-D-A-M-S-C-H-O-E-N-B-E-R-G. Adam, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us. And congratulations on your new album release. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this Highway 89 Extra. Highway 89 is a production of BYU Broadcasting. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BYUH89. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Thanks for listening.